This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Uh, turn out and uh, welcome to Stanford University's Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity's course on Confronting Katrina, Race, Class, and Disaster in America. Uh, thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, it looks like we're going to have a pretty full hall tonight. Uh, as people come in, there are a couple seats left around on the edges, some up in the very back of this section, but otherwise, please try to fill in, I guess, um, along the aisles. Uh, my name is Lawrence Bobo. I'm the new director of CCSRE, and it is my honor to be able to welcome you all and our panelists for tonight. Like the rest of the nation, the faculty of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity was profoundly moved by the images of suffering and neglect we all witnessed in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, images that you now see playing around you. Throughout the country and here on the Stanford campus, people are struggling to understand what went wrong and why. We felt it imperative that a great university like Stanford should be in the forefront of informing our students and the larger community about the sorts of long-standing problems of entrenched poverty, racial inequality, and bureaucratic indifference and failure so much at the root of the human devastation seen in the Gulf Coast states. Thus, with the support of Provost John Echemendi, who we thank for his immediate and unwavering commitment to this endeavor, the faculty of CCSRE, the program in African and African American Studies, Stanford's uh, Continuing Studies Program, and the Institute for Research in the Social Sciences, and a number of other individuals and units across the university, we've launched this special one-unit course, open to all students and to the public, called Confronting Katrina, Race, Class, and Disaster in America. There are, of course, many different valuable strategies of involvement in an event of this kind, including donating your money, your time, and other material resources to those now in dire need. We encourage all of you to reach out to those whose lives have been upended by Katrina in these ways and many others. But a different type of obligation attaches to scholars and thinkers at a major university as well. We are also obligated to be a site of serious thinking, assessment, and sense-making when faced with an issue of this kind. As a result, we want to be a part of keeping our eye on the problems, the divisions, the as yet unfulfilled dreams for American democracy that Katrina brought to light. We want to help deepen an appreciation for the historical roots, current complexities and dynamics, and future prospects for better addressing issues of racial and class inequality. And beginning tonight, we want to provide a forum for civic discourse and exchange of ideas and information about a major social issue of concern to us all. Of course now, in just four sessions, we cannot hope to address all of the issues, concerns, needs, and challenges raised by the devastation left in Katrina's wake. But we are committed to providing much-needed perspective on the roots of the problem so painfully and powerfully brought back into focus by the hurricane and to consider some of the lessons and directions for, for the future that we hope are impressed upon us all. The course will have four sessions led by Stanford faculty and distinguished outside guests. The themes for each of the four sessions are as follows. The first, tonight's session, we've entitled The Foundations of Neglect. Our second session, which I believe is scheduled for October 24th, 
will be entitled Media, Culture, and the Politics of Representation, Viewing a Racialized Disaster. Our third session, scheduled for November 7th, is entitled Organizations as the Solution and the Problem. And our fourth and final session is entitled Lessons from Katrina, which will take place on November 28th. We see this course as providing the background, knowledge, and perspective necessary to make sense of the problems and issues brought to light by Katrina. It will also be a forum for serious discussion and probing examination of what we need to do as a nation to avoid such a calamity in the future. We invite you all to be part of honestly confronting these challenges. When thinking of those scenes from the Gulf Coast states, especially of the images of homes engulfed by water, of people struggling to get to the safety of dry ground, of thousands upon thousands of people huddled at the Superdome, and even of debris and dead bodies floating through the streets of New Orleans for several horrifying days, one hopes that this calamity, at a minimum, proves to be a clarifying moment, perhaps ultimately even an inspirational and redemptive moment. For many, these images now indelibly etched into the nation's consciousness, indeed the world's consciousness, brought squarely into view the deep divides of class and race that are otherwise so often hustled out of view, if not actively denied in so much popular discourse and mainstream thought. You've all heard the pointed questions, of course. Can this still happen in America? Can the wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth be so unprepared and so slow in responding to the needs of its own citizens? Is the racial divide still that severe a problem in America? Are there still two Americas? And what can we do to avert this sort of tragedy in the future? These images and these types of questions bring us here tonight. At its core, CCSRE, through our courses in Asian American Studies, Chicano-Chicano Studies, Native American Studies, African and African American Studies, and the comparative major, and as cross-listed through many traditional departments, focus on understanding how race and ethnicity have shaped identities shaped social and political institutions, and shaped and determined material life chances in the U.S. and around the world. We try to bring the information, the needed conceptual lenses and vocabularies necessary as we as concerned citizens try to come to grips with and work to resolve the sorts of class inequality, racial inequality, and the wedges that exist when those two things overlap and come together. Um, tonight, we in particular will consider some of the key foundations of the problems represented by Katrina. We'll think about the demographic, sociological, historical, and political underpinnings of what was wrong and what went wrong. And in taking stock of these conditions, we hope to be pointing toward a clearer view of what must be done in the future. I want now to introduce Professor Matt Nip, <laughs> Matt Snip. <laughs> Pardon that. <laughs> Part of the leadership team of CCSRE, who will moderate our session this evening and introduce uh, our other speakers. Professor Snip is currently director of our undergraduate programs and of the Native American Studies program and the comparative major. Before moving to Stanford's sociology department in 1996, he was professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been a research fellow at the Census Bureau and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. He has published three books and over 60 articles and book chapters on demography, economic development, poverty, and unemployment. His current research and writing deals with the methodology of racial measurement, changes in social economic well-being of American ethnic minorities, and poverty and unemployment on American Indian 
uh, reservations. He currently serves as an appointed member of the Census Bureau's Racial and Ethnic Advisory Committee, uh, several working groups at the Census Bureau, and two National Academy of Science panels des designed with the charge to help design the 2010 census. Uh, let me welcome to the podium uh, Professor Matt Smith. Thank you, Larry, for that kind introduction. Um, I want to extend a very special welcome uh, to the community members uh, in attendance tonight. Uh, it's wonderful to have such a diverse mix of folks here, students and uh, folks from around the, the, the community that surrounds Stanford, so welcome. Um, as, as Larry mentioned, uh, the Center for Comparative Studies of Race and Ethnicity uh, is, has a very large undergraduate uh, program attached to it. Uh, our program uh, includes majors in African American Studies, Asian American Studies, Native American Studies, uh, Asian American Studies, and a general major in Comparative Studies. Uh, we are one of the larger majors on, at the university. Uh, right now we have over 100 students in one or a number of these different majors. Uh, I like to think that our program is actually a very unique program. We are not a traditional ethnic studies program as ethnic studies is commonly known at other universities. We have a very, very strong comparative focus, uh, both in terms of across cultures as well as historic, uh, historical comparisons. And that we, I like to think that we offer our students uh, the very finest in a classical uh, liberal education in, in, sort of in every sense of the word. If you're at all curious about our major, uh, we have quite a bit of material out in the hallway as you enter, and that if you're at all interested in what we do, or if you're a student here at Stanford and sort of thinking about a major, I hope you'll stop and, and pick up some information. Um, bear with me for a second, because I'm going to have to take care of some housekeeping details related to uh, folks who are getting credit for uh, this series of lectures. Uh, as most of you know, Stanford students can earn one unit of, of, of course credit, uh, but I want to stress that you do have to enroll by October 16th, uh, the date that you have to file your study list. Uh, just to sort of ease that process, the class number is number 24732. Uh, and again, if you want to write it down, it's 24732. And the requirements for the course are listed in the syllabus. Uh, you can pull the syllabus down from coursework. I think there are also extra copies out in the hallway. Uh, the syllabus, uh, you'll see that uh, attendance in the four courses, or the four sessions is required, and that on November 28th, there is a, a brief writing assignment, which will be due. Uh, the sign-in, I'm going to start I'm going to start a sheet around up here at the front. If you're a, stu a Stanford student and you're planning on receiving credit for this course, uh, what I'd like you to do is to sign in. If you're not enrolled yet, just make a check by your name. And that if you are enrolled, there's another sheet inside of this notebook that we'd like you just to check your name off and sort of help facilitate the process of making sure that you were, in fact, here. So I'm going to start sending that around. Does this count for continuing study students also? Um, Larry? Is Charlie Junkerman here? Yes, Charlie. Uh, can you answer that question? The answer, the question was, does this count for one credit for continuing stu study students? No, we haven't arranged that. Okay. Okay. Sorry. 
Um, there are a couple of people that I, or actually several people I'd like to recognize if they're still in the room. Uh, we have two CSRE peer counselors who are available for students who are considering the uh, major uh, as well as the minor in CSRE. And the, these are students who are very knowledgeable about what we do and the kinds of courses and what's involved in, in getting a degree in comparative studies and race and ethnicity. Uh, Sonia Montejano, are you here in the room? Or are you outside working? Not here yet. Okay. How about Crystal Cloyan? Crystal? Okay. I'll see them Monday. <laughs> um, the uh, two other people uh, who worked very, very hard in making this happen is Chris Queen still here? Chris, right over here, CSRE staff who's worked very, very hard, and Margarita Ibarra. Margarita? Margarita's still out there working. Um, uh, Margarita Ibarra is another person, our, our two staff people who have worked very hard to make this happen, and believe me, uh, they have really worked. Um, Okay, so the next thing that I want to do is really sort of briefly run through the format uh, for tonight's events. And uh, where I want to begin is really, uh, I'm in, a, in a second, I'm going to introduce our panelists, uh, Larry Bobo, Al Camarillo, and Luis Fraga. Uh, that's after the introduction. I'm going to sort of briefly uh, walk you through a profile of the people and places that were impacted by uh, Katrina. And this should hopefully provide a context for the panel discussion. Uh, that'll actually be followed by the panel, and then uh, the last 45 or 60 minutes of our session tonight will be devoted to a town hall discussion. And I want to sort of I want to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, you should have received a three by five card, or at least they've been circulating around the room. How many people haven't received them yet? Okay, well, uh, okay, well, we're, okay, they are circulating now. Uh, the 3x5 uh, cards, uh, hang on to them, uh, because what we're going to ask you to do is if you have uh, questions for the panel as a whole or for specific panelists, uh, what we're going to ask you to do is to write your question on the card, uh, pass it around, uh, pass it to uh, people who will be circulating up and down the aisles, uh, picking the cards up. And what I will do is, is more or less uh, uh, sort through them and, and sort of randomly pick uh, questions to, to, to uh, pose to the panel. Uh, I apologize in advance if we don't get to your question. There will probably be many more questions than we can, can get around to in the course of the, the time that we have available. Um, and I do want to sort of emphasize two things. One is that if you have a, a question that you want to direct it to a specific panel member, please write that panel member's name on your card uh, or to the panel as a whole. And then also to please uh, write legibly. I'm getting old and it's getting harder and harder to read those things. All right. Um, What I want to do next is really to provide, like I said, a little bit of context about the people and places that were impacted by the storm Katrina. And this NOAA, I think there's a, this NOAA shot, I think, is really quite remarkable because what it shows, obviously, is the, you know, the, the well-deformed, well-formed eye and the sort of the swirl of the hurricane to counterclockwise. Uh, in a sense, it was, a, in many respects, a perfect storm. Um, this is the area. The, the lighter colored area is the actual disaster areas that were declared uh, natural disaster or the, the areas that were impacted by Katrina. Uh, you can see, and as you know, as the storm is coming up 
as the storm is coming up out of the Gulf, you know, in this direction and swirling in a clockwise. Uh, Okay, I'm sorry. You can, as the storm is, is swirling in this counterclockwise fashion and then moving up in this direction, you can see the areas that are going to hit, get the, the brunt of the storm. They're going to be places like Gulf, or Gulfport, Biloxi, Mobile, and then, of course, New Orleans. Um, this just shows the uh, population densities of the areas that were most uh, uh, intensely affected by the storm. Uh, down here in the lower uh, part of the map, you can see that's, the, that's uh, New Orleans moving up. That's Baton, or Baton Rouge to the left, uh, Biloxi over here. Um, and then, you know, the rest of this area is actually relatively sparsely populated. Now, this is probably, I think, a, a more telling um, map. This shows the poverty rates uh, for this region. And... I apologize, the, the resolution on this came out a little fuzzy, especially up here on the screen. Uh, but the darkest pictures are poverty rates of 40% or more. Uh, these are areas that have in which the families are living in them. Uh, 40% of the families or more are living in poverty. And just to give you an idea of what that means, uh, in 2004, uh, the poverty line was $19,307. Uh, for a family of four. So if you had an income below $19,000, uh, you were living in poverty. And that's these areas in, down there by New Orleans. You see some of them uh, farther up uh, in um, uh, uh, kind of sort of the center of the area, and then back over here in, around Biloxi. Uh, the, the lighter colored, the sort of the more rust colored, uh, that's 30 to 40 percent. And then the lighter areas are less than 10 percent. This just shows the concentration of minorities in the uh, New Orleans area. Uh, the green areas are areas in which there is a pop minority population of 75% or more, so you know, roughly you know, three-quarters or more of the population are minorities living in these areas. Uh, what this also shows is that New Orleans is, in fact, one of the most segregated cities in the United States. You can see this sort of little tiny corner up in the uh, northwest part of the city that's largely white, and then everything else to the right. Uh, is largely minority. Uh, now, just in terms of orienting uh, yourself and sort of keep, keeping in mind where these areas are located, one of the things that's useful is to pay attention to that river, the, the bend in the river that sort of comes, there's a U-shape in the river, and then it sort of comes up and then makes a turn back down to the south where it says Mississippi River. So that keep that bend in mind. Uh, this is just, a, in a sense, an elaboration on the previous slide. It just shows the areas of New Orleans where uh, one or another different minority groups represent sort of the, uh, the, the dominant minority population. So in the green, uh, the, most of the minorities in that area are African American. Uh, one area over here with a small number of Asians uh, and then a small number of Hispanics over in the uh, upper uh, northwest part of the city. Uh, these, again, this shows, you know, the extent to which New Orleans is a segregated city. Uh, here you show, that, you know, you see the white population is concentrated in this little corner of the northwest and then sort of farther over here. Uh, but, you know, the vast ma majority of this, the city, the, the kind of the interior of the city is right there and it it's, it's, tends to be not white. Uh, 
mirror image. This majority are, are in fact black who, who live in the inner city of, of New Orleans. And again, you can sort of orient yourself to that sort of that bend in the, the river down there, and I'll show you in a second why that's significant. <coughs> uh, this shows the median household incomes. And the median household incomes in this area, um, median household income in New Orleans is about $27,000. Uh, that contrasts with the median household income for the United States, which is $44,000. Uh, the deep purple areas have median household incomes of less than 15,000. Uh, and then sort of in the, the lavender areas have median household incomes of 15 to $20,000. Uh, so we're talking about a city that is in fact a very, very poor place. Okay, this is a before and shot of what New Orleans looked like from a satellite view. Oops. And here's that bend in the river that I was trying to get orient you to uh, down here in the lower right corner. This shows New Orleans, what it looks like uh, before Katrina when it was dry, about three weeks actually before the storm. Uh, this is the city after the storm. All of this dark, uh, the dark on the streets is all water. Okay. Go back here. So that you can see the sort of the you know, sort of the extent of the flooding, um, and that you know it, it basically goes all the way back uh, uh, west of the city park. And the next map, the last map that I want to share with you, uh, actually is a, a bit of a better map. This is an infrared uh, satellite photo showing the location of the flooding and sort of the boundaries. And you notice up in that northwest corner, it's 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 one of the dry places uh, part of the city now. What you take away from this, of course, is that, that, you know, that black people and white people were flooded out by Katrina, to be sure. Uh, but by and large, uh, there was a, that there was a racialized component as to who was victimized by the storm. And that, you know, to be sure that there were white people who were sort of, who lost homes and had property damage. But many of those people had the wherewithal to leave uh, town well ahead of the storm. And as a result, they weren't left there to, 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 to experience the storm's uh, most intense brunt. Okay. All right. Uh, having said that, what I'd like to do next is to introduce our panelists who are going to talk about this. Um, gentlemen. I want to begin with Professor Larry Bobo. Professor Bobo is the Martin Luther King Centennial Professor at Stanford University. He is the director of Stanford Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and the program in African and African American Studies. He is formerly the Tishman Diker Professor of Sociology and of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. He is an elected member of the National Academy of Science a former fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences and a former visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation. His research concerns race, ethnicity, politics, and social inequality. He is the founder, edit, founding editor of the Dubois Review, Social Science Research on Race, published by Cambridge University Press. He is co-author of the award-winning book, Racial Attitudes in America. Uh, he is the senior editor for another book titled Prismatic Brentropolis and the co-editor of Racialized Politics, the Debate on Racism in America. 
His forthcoming book is titled Prejudice and Politics, Public Opinion, Group Position, and the Wisconsin Treaty Rights Dispute to be published by Harvard University Press. Uh, he is currently conducting research on race, crime, and public opinion. Our second panelist is Professor Albert Camarillo. Uh, Professor Camarillo was appointed to the faculty in the Department of History at Stanford University in 1975, and in 2002, he was named the Miriam and Peter Haas Centennial Professor in Public Service. He has published seven books and over three dozen articles and essays dealing with the experiences of Mexican Americans and other racial and ethnic groups in American cities. Uh, Professor Camarillo is widely regarded as one of the founding scholars in the field of Mexican American history and Chicano studies. His most recent book, Comparing the History of Various Major Ethnic and Racial Minority Groups in American Cities, entitled Not White, Not Black, Mexicans and the Racial Ethnic Borderlands in American Cities, will be published by Oxford University Press. Uh, he is also the co-author of a new textbook on California history, and he is currently working on a book entitled Going Back to Compton, Reflections of a Native Son in, a in an Infamous American City. Over the course of his career, Professor Camarillo has received many awards and fellowships, including the uh, national, including one from the National Endowment for the Humanities, a Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship. He was also a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences and at the Stanford Humanities Center. Uh, he is the only faculty member in the history of Stanford University to receive three, the three highest awards for excellence in teaching uh, and service to edu education. Most recently, Camarillo was named the Miriam was awarded the Miriam Rowland Prize for Volunteer Service in 2005. Our third panelist is Professor Luis uh, Fraga. Uh, professor Fraga is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University. His primary interests are urban politics, the politics of race and ethnicity, and educational politics and voting rights policy. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including Ethnic and Racial Minorities in Advanced Industrial Democracies, Democracies at Risk, How Political Choices Undermine Citizen Participation and What We Can Do About It, and the forthcoming book, uh, The Multi-Ethnic uh, Moment, The Politics of Education Reform in Multi-Ethnic Cities. He has published widely in scholarly journals and edited volumes, including the Journal of Politics, Urban Affairs Quarterly, the Western Political Quarterly, and the Dubois Review. He is currently completing two book manuscripts, The Changing Urban Regime, um, and Missed Opportunities, the Politics of Schools in San Francisco. He is a past president of the Western Political Science Association and has served on the Executive Council of the American Political Science Association. Uh, Professor Fraga has received a number of teaching and advising awards at Stanford, including the Rhodes Prize for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching, the Dinkelspiel Award for Distinctive Contributions to Undergraduate Education, and the Cox Medal for Faculty Excellence. Uh, he's also received the faculty award from the Chicano Chica Latino graduating class, the undergraduate faculty of the year award, and the Associated Students of Stanford University Teaching Award. In 2003 and 04, he was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, working on a study entitled Gender and Ethnicity, the Political Incorporation of Latina and Latino State Legislatures. I'd like you to join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. Um, that's cute. <laughs> there we go. 
was a very nice thought, so <laughs> to change the mood for a moment. Um, shall I do that? Uh, on August 23, 2005, the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, predicted that a tropical depression would soon become a hurricane. Two days later, Tropical Storm Katrina becomes Hurricane Katrina as its winds rise to 75 miles per hour. On August 26, the governors of Louisiana and Mississippi declare states of emergency and request assistance from the federal government. By August 28, the wind speed has elevated uh, Katrina to a Category 5 hurricane with winds around 175 miles per hour. New Orleans Mayor Nagin uh, issues an order of evacuation for the city. Uh, the National Hurricane Center characterizes the potential damage when it makes landfall as catastrophic. The next day, by 8 a.m., as Cortina's winds ebb a small bit to a mere 145 miles per hour, the levees in New Orleans were already starting uh, to overflow. Uh, when the eye of the storm passes over land, the winds are still at a breathtaking 125 miles per hour, and major levees in New Orleans, especially the one along 17th Street, were well flooded by uh, 11 a.m. that day. Uh, by August 30th, the pictures of devastation of homes, neighborhoods, commercial property, and indeed national landmarks began to be shown around the world. Then the images of human suffering began to assume crystal clarity. By September 1st, Mayor Nagin issues his desperate SOS call for assistance. Finally, on September 2nd, nearly four days after the main thrust of the storm and after severe loss of life and intense human suffering, the major federal response to this disaster begins and help begins to reach out to move those left behind. By this point, however, the searing images of citizens left to fend for themselves were burned in the, into the national psyche. While there will long be debate over what those images do and should mean, the images themselves bear loud witness to circumstances in America that are wrong and troubling. I want to suggest here this evening that those images shattered three myths. The first of these myths is the idea um, that uh, we as a nation no longer need focus on poverty and economic inequality as social ills. The second of these myths is that we have largely solved the race problem in America and no longer need social action and social policy aimed at achieving racial justice. And the third of these myths, somewhat more complex to articulate, is that there are no collective social ends beyond military defense and national security that are enduring obligations of an effective, responsibly led federal government. Katrina is a clarion call to recognize that American society is still deeply riven by class inequality, by a great racial divide, and that there are some duties and services which only an adequately resourced and responsibly managed federal government can hope to deliver. In speaking to the matters of class inequality and racial inequality, especially on the latter, I want to stress that I am not merely talking about historical legacies. I am talking about current structural conditions and active modern-day political and cultural problems. The central idea I wish to communicate is that African Americans, especially the African American poor, are particularly disadvantaged, 
marginalized, if you will, owing to a confluence of conditions, particularly economic and wealth disparities on the one hand and racial residential segregation on the other. When these two conditions intersect, as they do in, in the New Orleans, as some of uh, Professor Snip's slides illustrated, and in many other American cities, you have the basis for extreme ghetto poverty and social disorganization. As the pictures from Katrina uh, reinforced, the experience of economic disadvantage in America is not randomly distributed, especially at least not with regard to race. To briefly examine one standard indicator, please consider median household incomes, which this figure reports for the period, I think, 1967 to 2001. Uh, the following, uh, the, the picture reveals a rather steady rank ordering where blacks and Hispanics, I see many eyes squinting at this, I'm sorry it's not in crisper focus, <laughs> um, where blacks and Hispanics are at the bottom with roughly 65% of the median household income of whites, a ratio that has changed little over this long stretch of years. Perhaps more immediately pertinent to events in New Orleans are figures for exposure to poverty. As the next slide shows, uh, blacks and Hispanics are much more likely to experience exposure to poverty uh, at roughly two out of 10 as compared to roughly one in 10 among white Americans. In addition, despite downward trends for much of the post-1960 era, rates of poverty have started to creep up slightly again uh, for more recent data in the last three to four years. The next slide tries to give a detailed snapshot of poverty as of the late 1990s. Important to note here is the much higher percentage of blacks, Hispanics, and American Indians in the so-called extreme poverty category, which is a rate essentially four times that observed among the white population, that is roughly 12% for each of these minority groups as compared to 3% for whites. Now, extreme poverty is defined as having an income that is 50% or less the official poverty line. So it's not just a matter of falling below the line, it's falling quite far below the established uh, poverty line. Thus, extreme poverty is a much more common experience among minorities. The relative shortness of my time here this evening, since each of us speakers should only take 10 to 15 minutes, doesn't permit me to do kind of a full review of employment data. But part of what I want to make note of here is that these inequalities are not just the result of educational differences, lack of trying, and the like. Social scientists continue to compile evidence of real race-based discrimination in the labor market, including in the low-wage, low-skill sector of the economy, where we often assume competitive pressures would wash out any potential for discrimination. This is not to say, by the way, that race discrimination is as extreme as it was in the past. It is not. Or that it is the primary source of the racial economic inequalities we still see today. It is not. But it is a real and substantial ingredient of those inequalities. But it is to say, furthermore, that discrimination on the basis of race still occurs and is very much an element of the story of an African-American and Hispanic disadvantage as appeared manifest in this event. For example, many of you have no doubt heard the results of the experimental naming study carried out in Boston and Chicago using real job listings. In a superbly well-designed experimental study, two economists, this makes it believable, um, <laughs> showed that racially identifiable names alone are enough to create job discrimination. They found specifically that Lakeisha and Jamal really don't do very well compared to Emily or Greg even if they have identical resumes. 
This difference occurred in each of four major sectors of the economy, uh, I might add, when it comes to getting contacted for a job interview. And it occurred whether or not the person's resume was considered a very strong resume or a very weak resume. <laughs> and in particular, with respect to that strong resume, they found no evidence of some sort of pro-minority bias. Uh, just the opposite, the same rate of discrimination uh, occurred. Yet, um, this study, along with other auditing, experimental research, in-depth interviews with uh, employers and the occasional prominent class action suit, make it clear that we still have much work to do to battle discrimination in the labor market. Yet part of what Katrina forces to light is not just a concern with employment prospects and poverty, but also I'm going to submit here this evening with wealth, with the accumulated financial assets that individual families have at their disposal. As recent sociological work has conclusively shown, the large racial disparities in unemployment and poverty, while quite severe, are actually comparatively small judged against differences in accumulated wealth. By wealth, social scientists mean economic resources such as savings, stocks, bonds, home equity, business ownership, and other things that can be sold or converted to capital if need be. Wealth is important because to a degree far more so than mere earnings, Wealth helps to fundamentally underwrite and sustain a particular standard of living. It is wealth that lets you ride out a spate of unemployment or a financially costly illness. It is wealth that allows one to launch a business or to finance a child's college education. The next figure comes from sociologist Melvin Oliver and Tom Shapiro's award-winning book, Black Wealth, White Wealth, based on 1984 national data. It shows a median gross net worth of nearly 44,000 for white Americans as compared to just 3,700 among black Americans for a ratio of more than 10 to 1. If one subtracts out debts to get what they call NFA or net financial assets, the extremity of the difference becomes even clearer as the figure for black goes to zero. It's actually a negative number. Uh, the next figure tries to flesh out the implications of this wealth gap quickly, and I hope the numbers are large enough for you to read them. It poses the question, if you lost your main source of income today, what sort of financial resources would you have to rely upon? The data are actually quite striking. On the first day of such job loss, approximately 61% of black households would have zero net financial assets, as would fully 54% of Hispanic households, which contrasts to barely one in four white households. After six months, the final column without a job, over 80% of black households would have exhausted all of their resources, as would 77% of Hispanic households. But still, interestingly, less than 50% of white households would have spent all of their available cash resources. There are three implications to stress about wealth. First, this does not reflect differences in the rate of savings. Studies suggest that across race, individuals try to save 10 to 12% of their earnings both black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Second, wealth is substantially inherited, not derived from savings or earnings. It is what one generation is able to pass on to another. Third, these racial gaps have not substantially narrowed in recent years. In fact, they've slightly widened during the um, economic stock market boom of the 90s and remain large even for young age cohorts and for those who otherwise have high earnings, as the next slide shows. And I won't do this one in, in great detail, but it's based on more recent data. I apologize for its complexity. But the idea is to show that there are enormous 
racial differences in wealth, even if you look at people at the very poorest income quintile or, importantly, the very highest income quintile. The differences are still enormous. When you combine lower annual incomes, greater exposure to poverty, especially deep poverty, and the lack of accumulated financial assets, the real uh, legacy of discrimination based on race, then you begin to get part of the structural foundation for the sort of images that emerged in New Orleans. Who can afford to get on an airplane and fly away from an impending disaster? Who can buy bus tickets for a whole family and get away? Who owns that car that they can just hop into and drive away? And who is in a position to do none of those things? That's what that wealth divide speaks to. But why all the black faces in those pictures? Is this just an economic narrative with a slight racial twist to it? To fully appreciate what happened, we have to consider one other major structural condition, namely racial residential segregation, as Professor Snip uh, emphasized. Blacks and whites in particular, but also to an important degree, Latinos, Asians, and whites in America have been separated into distinct residential communities. Demographers and sociologists use a statistic called the dissimilarity index to gauge the extremity of segregation. It runs from zero to 100, where a score of 100 would mean that all members of a group, black or white, would have to change their current place of residence to achieve a random distribution without regard to race. This next slide shows dis dissimilarity scores for a selected set of cities and major regions in 1980 and 2000. You'll see that in 1980, New Orleans was at 71, meaning fully 71% of blacks and whites would have to change their current residence to be randomly dispersed across neighborhood, a fairly high level of segregation. This figure had declined very modestly to 69 in the year 2000. Now, New Orleans is not as extremely segregated as our Chicago, Detroit, or New York areas, but it is more severely segregated than most major Western cities. Now, a variety of factors lead to segregation by race, and this is a domain where discrimination on the basis of race is even more strongly implicated today than in the labor market. The sources of bias can be both institutional and individual, Perhaps more important for our purposes this evening than the processes creating segregation uh, are the fact that segregation uh, matters enormously for one's quality of life um, experience, and I'll quickly skip to that. Uh, it has consequences for the quality of the schools and other resources in one's neighborhood. It has consequences for the likelihood that you will have contact and build networks with people who are employed, who are well-educated, who have good-paying jobs, or who are unemployed, poorly educated, and potentially welfare dependent. It influences your exposure to unwanted social conditions like sources of pollution, or for instance, living below sea level and near levees. It also has bearing on your vulnerability to crime and violence. In particular, it is now clear that when you overlay segregation of housing by class on top of segregation of housing by race, those in the poorest, mostly minority neighborhoods face extraordinarily severe disadvantages. And it is just this mix of circumstances of high rates of poverty and high rates of segregation that compounded the level of damage faced by certain of New Orleans' most marginalized neighborhoods. There are many conditions, of course, that are unique to New Orleans. However, there are also some characteristics common to many American cities that existed there. The terrible overlap of economic disadvantage, racial inequality, and racial segregation being among them. If Katrina is to be a clarifying moment, a learning moment, indeed a redemptive moment, then we must put back on the public agenda in a very high place 
a discussion of how social policy must be rededicated to the tasks of eradicating poverty, how we need a renewed vision of a commitment to racial justice, a vision that not only vigorously responds to signs of discrimination and access to jobs and to housing, but that is committed to a goal of full inclusion and a share of the good life without regard to race. And we need to recreate a vocabulary for talking about the duties of government and of each of us to one another that seems to have been lost over the past two to three decades. If Katrina really does push us in this direction, if it helps to rekindle a dream too long deferred, then we will indeed be the better for it. Thank you very much. Well, we're delighted to have uh, so many community members and students here. Uh, about 10 days ago, when we decided to launch this course, I think it was the second day of the quarter, we, we, uh, we weren't sure. We thought that you would come. So Larry said, build the course and they will come. And lo and behold, you're here. <laughs> uh, I also have a solution for you continuing studies students that want credit. Now, Charlie Yunkerman, the man in charge, says no. But if you're willing to shell out a third of the regular Stanford tuition, for a mere $15,000, we'll give you one. <laughs> Any takers? No, no takers. All right. All right, well, I, I've titled my, my comments the Katrina Disasters, underscore the plural, and Marginal Americans, something that, that Professor Bobo um, also alluded to in his talks. There are, there are people on the margins of society, people on the periphery of mainstream American society and culture, people who, because of their race and or ethnicity, and or socioeconomic status, and or national or origin, undocumented and documented immigrants, and or physical di disabilities, stand outside the orbit of American institutional life. These are people who, in the eyes of the larger society, be it at the national, the state, or local level, are the undeserving, the easily neglected, quickly dismissed, forgotten Americans. They are largely invisible to middle-class Americans, and only in times of crisis are afforded attention by the press or by government officials. These times of crisis have historically involved urban civil unrest, riots, unprecedented periods of crime, cities with the infamous distinctions of murder capitals of the U.S., or with waves of gang violence, or crises during severe winter seasons that result in the, in the death of the poor, the sick, the elderly, the elderly, the homeless people in the cities of the Frost Belt. The other crises, of course, are natural disasters. And the most recent in the Gulf Coast region has revealed yet again the tragedy of the lives lived by marginal Americans. Tonight, I want to provide some comments about three disasters and what they tell us about the status of different people we can categorize as marginal people. The first disaster was natural, Katrina. Beautiful name, but a hurricane with horrendous consequences. The second disaster was and is a social disaster. And the third was and is an institutional disaster. The first was an act of nature. The second and third are convergences of legacies of racial and class and other inequalities. These three related disasters together have created another marginality for the people most adversely affected by the hurricane and its aftermath, which I will explain in a few minutes. The natural disaster. 
Suffice it, suffice it to say that Hurricane Katrina was one of the most widespread, devastating natural disasters in U.S. history, affecting more people than any previous natural calamity. Devastation was far and wide, you've already seen pictures of it, creating untold misery. But the misery was especially felt by the poor, the great majority in New Orleans who were African Americans, and by the elderly and the infirm. Just think about the visual imagery of the disaster we have now fixed in our minds, which you've seen up here earlier. It is poor, and it is predominantly black. The social disaster, it has many dimensions. Loss of life of over 1,000 people, tens of thousands injured, and hundreds of thousands of people displaced from their homes. But I want to focus on the 100,000 or so New Orleans residents and other people in the Gulf Coast region who suffered the most because they were considered marginal people. This is a bit of a rehash, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it nonetheless. The socioeconomic profile of New Orleans society gives us a glimpse into who these people are. 77% born and raised in Louisiana, 67% of all residents in that city African-American, 28% below the federal poverty line, and great numbers barely above this threshold, and an unusually larger than average percentage of people with disabilities when we compare New Orleans to other American cities. These were the people at the epicenter of the social disaster, not only because of the natural disaster, but because of the institutional disaster. The institutional disaster, more than anything else, laid bare how marginal these 100,000 residents were as tens of thousands were left behind or opted to remain behind as the hurricane descended on the city and as the vulnerable levy system failed. Nothing reveals more how these people were viewed and treated as marginal Americans than the evacuation plans at the local, the state, and federal levels. I use here an example from the local municipal plan that was supposed to be coordinated with the state and federal plans. There was a voluntary and then a mandatory evacuation 48 hours and 24 hours before the hurricane struck. Those with economic resources and familial resources successfully left the region in time. They made hotel and plane reservations in advance, withdrew cash from their bank and ATM accounts, and packed their belongings in cars and vacated the city. But what about that approx those approximately 100,000 or so who couldn't leave or refused to leave? The city's evacuation plan, and I find this amazing, actually indicated, if you read in detail, there were 100,000 people, 100,000 residents that did not have access to transportation in the event of a mass evacuation. What about those others too poor to arrange their own transportation for themselves and who would not abandon family members in similar situations? What about those too ill to relocate with no one to help them? What about those who wanted to leave but had no alternative but to stay until the end of the month when their social security checks arrived, the only source of income for many elderly and poor, and the working poor who survive from paycheck to paycheck? Then there were those for one reason or another tried to ride out the storm. The question we must ask about these marginal Americans is, how many would have opted to leave? had they been offered the opportunity of public transportation by the city, the state, or local officials. The institutional disaster was complicit in creating the social disaster. Emergency preparedness was feeble at best, especially with the one state apparatus, the federal government, leading the parade of ineptness. The failure of the institutional response was not merely because of bureaucratic inadequacies, 
Failures of leadership at every level, though they were obvious, but because institutions and the people who run them do not take into consideration Americans on the margin, especially black people who inhabited the poorest sections of the city, hardest hit by the natural disaster in so many ways. We saw the images on our television sets that brought to light how black and white people suffered at the Superdome and the convention center in their apartments flooded to the roof, line, roof lines, waiting to be rescued after being forgotten. Elsewhere in the region, we barely, rarely heard about the poor folks, white, blacks, Asian, and Latino, in the Delta and Bayou regions who were really left to fend for themselves. These people included an estimated 150,000 Mexican immigrant workers and their loved ones who lived in the small towns that dot the countryside. But the federal response, anemic and too late, came with a promise to help these people. Undocumented workers who sought help would not be turned over to the immigration officials and deported. By the way, I read just last week, uh, you may recall this incident in, in the evacuation of the Houston area as a result of Hurricane Rita. The bus that caught fire, there was the his heroic effort of the bus driver to save a number of people, although I think two dozen perished. He was an undocumented Mexican immigrant. And the promise, he was deported this week. The legacy of the Katrina disaster and its consequences are unfolding daily. Tens of thousands are still in emergency shelters, waiting in horribly long lines to use telephones to inquire about their government checks, promised FEMA relief funds, and the like. More than anything else, the natural disaster spoke to us vividly and, and loudly about how race, ethnicity, and class matters, especially when crises strike. The most vulnerable usually are the poorest, especially black, but white, Latino, and Asian as well. These marginal people are now part of another group of, a marginal, of marginal Americans, the homeless. The Katrina disaster has created the largest number of homeless people in American history. Will so many of Katrina's victims, also the victims of inequality, continue exp to experience yet another dimension of marginality as homeless Americans? Or will our society wake up to the reality that the social disaster of inequality is just as brutal as any natural disaster. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. If I have to think of a term that characterizes and maybe encapsulates many of the points that you have heard before. I would use the term opportunity segmentation. And I would use that term because I think it allows us to consider the broader social foundations and of course economic foundations of what we see with the disaster in Katrina. But I think opportunity segmentation allows us to consider the way in which the structure of political arrangements, and by the structure of political arrangements, I mean the intersection of public institutions and public policies that structure incentives, interests, identities, and capacities, incentives, interests, identities, and capacities that established the type of separation, that opportunity segmentation,
that characterizes so many metropolitan areas in the United States today. What might we begin to identify as a primary cause, maybe even the primary cause, for the persistence of opportunity segmentation in metropolitan areas in the United States today? One important cause is what I'm going to characterize here for you today as challenges of scale within a system of democratic governance. Challenges of scale. By challenges of scale, I mean the way in which our national, state, and local government are structured within a system of what we traditionally call American federalism. Now, we know that American federalism has tremendous virtues, and we know its importance in helping us understand the structure of American society. American federalism has very deep roots. By federalism, I mean, obviously, the subdivision of power and authority between a national government and sub-state units. And among its advantages is that it allows for a sense of personal and community-based empowerment, and it allows, as well, for a sense of greater local adaptability. But as our system of American federalism has evolved, and as especially metropolitan areas have evolved, within the American political system, we see that a driving consequence of this evolution has been an increasingly significant, as Professors Bobo and Camarillo outlined, division of opportunity segmentation. Every city in our system of American federalism has an incentive to try to maximize its competitive advantage relative to other cities. Each city, if you will, is in competition with every other city. What makes this significant in a metropolitan area and across metropolitan areas, what makes this significant is that opportunity can then become segmented based upon the nature of that competitive advantage. Let me take a particular historical moment. Cities historically have been major centers of economic growth and opportunity expansion. For many of us who have great-grandfathers and great-great-grandmothers who came here during earlier periods of time, especially those who immigrated from Europe, we understand that cities provided the great opportunities that allowed the foundations of wealth to be built. As cities evolved, especially after World War II, as a result of national policies such as federal home mortgage financing, the development of the interstate highway transportation system, and the way these two intersected with market dynamics trying to maximize individual choice. Notice what I'm trying to suggest here. The way in which national policies designed to enhance opportunity for broad cross-sections of the American population, reductions in home mortgage financing and the risks associated with to mortgage lenders in that home mortgage financing, a highway transportation system initially designed to um, facilitate greater national security, movement of goods and peoples across the United States, when intersected with significant market dynamics of choice, provided incentives for local governments to try to limit the extent to which specific segments of the population were resident in different localities the development of residentially-based suburbs, the segmentation of investment opportunity across different cities in metropolitan areas, 
the sorts of urban-suburban disparity and increasingly inter-suburban disparity, such as in tax bases, such as in educational funding, such as in healthcare and employment, are all derived within our system of American federalism. If you will, our system of separating governing authority between national, state, and at the state level across subnational units provides no infrastructure of public authority with sufficient capacity to address consequences resulting from market inefficiencies. States, if you will, have little incentive to try to compensate for this. Regionalism and thinking in regional terms is limited and the, the commitment of the national government, which has been extremely limited to trying to address these cross-governmental disparities, such as we see in the case of New Orleans, the national government's capacity to do that has depended primarily on presidential priorities and, I would argue, political possibilities. What I'm suggesting is one of the root causes of what we saw in the case of New Orleans, the concentrations of poverty and the limited governmental capacities to respond is what I would call a crisis of governing capacity. Now what's important to understand is that this crisis of governing capacity and these challenges of governmental scale that I referred to also coexist with challenges of citizen choice within a system of market decision making. It seems odd that we're talking about Hurricane Katrina here in Palo Alto, here in an area within Silicon Valley of tremendous opportunity, an area that many of us, perhaps all of us in this room at one point have chosen to try to maximize the extent to which we might be able to gain opportunity and maximize the extent to which we might be able to build upon that opportunity to provide chances for our children. It is these individual choices to try within a market system to drive market pricing through exclusivity. That is, it is the desire on the part of many of us to choose to live in areas that are largely segregated, especially largely segregated by class and race, it is our set of choices that leads to the types of class, racial, and ethnic residential segregation that we see so clearly in the case of New Orleans. Notice what I'm suggesting here. Individual choices that we make within a system of market-based housing dynamics, individual choices we make, to maximize our individual and our family's social mobility, and to try to maximize as best we can our own economic gain, do provide tremendous opportunities for those who can take advantage of them. But there is in such a system, there is in such a system virtually no opportunity for those without sufficient resources to be able to take advantage of those opportunities that might exist. There is even more significantly a culture established among us 
where we take very little collective responsibility for understanding the consequences of our individual choices. I would refer to this as the crisis of civic capacity in combination with the crisis of governance capacity. Three other points I'd like to make. What principles might guide us in fashioning policy solutions, that is, restructuring our incentives, interests, identities, and capacities to eliminate the extent that race, class, and increasingly geography, as they intersect with race and class, structure opportunity in the United States. I want to use the metaphor of interwoven destinies to try to outline these principles that might begin to guide us to you. One, there's a need for thinking more clearly in terms of interwoven destinies across distinct governmental units and across neighborhoods within governmental units there is a need to think more clearly in terms of interwoven destinies where the interests of central cities and the interests of lower income residents in central cities are linked directly to the interests of suburbs, suburban residents, and especially linked to the national interest. To the extent that regional governments provide new opportunities to promote cross-jurisdiction cost sharing, Cities must cede some of their authority to the extent that state governments must take a more active role in defining all sub-state jurisdictions and their authority to the extent that the national government must play a key role in targeting investment to lesser resourced areas. What I'm suggesting here is that this sense of interwoven destinies across governmental units must become an extremely high priority in our society. Now, don't get me wrong. This sort of cost sharing that I'm referring to, this sort of promotion of interwoven destinies across jurisdictional boundary lines confronts major challenges of power sharing that will not be easily resolved. Political leaders in large central cities, even those governing areas and cities such as in New Orleans, political leaders currently elected there aren't often willing to cede control to higher levels of government that may provide key resources in allowing them to better serve their constituents. Certainly, leaders of suburban areas and better resourced local governments have little incentive to think of cost sharing, whether in education, in housing, in crime control or in transportation have little incentive to think of cost sharing with leaders of central cities. Clearly, what this suggests is that political leadership at all of our major levels of government is key to the extent that this sense of interwoven destinies might be attained. But just as there's a need to think in terms of interwoven destinies across governmental units, perhaps even more challenging, is the need to think of how we might develop interwoven destinies across neighborhoods, across families, and across each of us as individuals. What I'm suggesting here is that the experience in New Orleans and the level of devastation that we saw may require that we commit ourselves to developing a greater sense of linked fate with broader cross-sections of our citizenry. 
Now, what might the outlines of that greater sense of linked fate, a term that has been used to talk about African Americans in the United States, what might the outlines of creating a better sense of that linked fate be? One might include engaging in the development of an informed public interest. By informed public interest, I mean an, a, a discourse about what might be in the public interest that is informed by difference, but informed simultaneously by the need for unity across those differences. One thing that I find is that as one focuses more and more on the differences that you have with your fellow citizen, in the end, the more and more you find what you share in common. And across our communities, I think, there may be a great need, and Katrina certainly provides us that opportunity, to engage in a discussion, informed by difference, but using that difference to get a greater sense of linked fate. The sense of interwoven destinies across neighborhoods, families, and individuals requires that all of us as voters push our political leaders to go beyond appeals to our narrow self-interest. There was a comment made with regards to the recent presidential election, comment made by someone who was disgusted with both the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate, and the comment that this particular thinker made was, well, one thing we know for sure about the presidential election, we will get the government we deserve. What I'm suggesting here is that this sense of interwoven destinies across neighborhoods, across families, this sense of linked fate has to begin with each of us holding our public officials to higher standards than just appealing to our narrow self-interest. Because at one level, if there is a crisis of political leadership, we only have ourselves as a community of voters to blame. It's also important, two other points, it's also important that the sense of interwoven destinies across neighborhoods, families, and individuals allow ourselves to begin to learn from what I'm going to call here, as one author has, political learning and the unbounded possibilities of positive constraints. By this I mean it's time for us to think of public policy not just as a success or failure, but it's time for us to think of public policies as both successes and failures, and we have a responsibility to learn from both successes and failures. That's the idea of positive constraints. That is, we have to allow ourselves sufficient space in our public discourse for government to try to address some of the very significant structural and related economic, social and economic issues that we confront, to try to address it and fail and not say, therefore, government getting involved makes no sense, but rather, what lessons do we learn from that failure? To try to work with government and with the private sector to build a better set of relationships, to build opportunity expansion more than we have in the past. Now, the sense of our interwoven destinies across individuals, communities, and neighborhoods represents, includes, rather, a fundamental challenge. And that is where, for those of us who are lucky enough to have children, how we understand our children's interests. That is, there's a way of understanding our responsibilities to build interwoven destinies as ones which require us to take risks with the lives of our children, requires us to think about putting together a more interwoven future, 
And that sort of a challenge is, I think, when unaddressed, is the one that directly contributes to how little we want to talk about. The need for linking our interests more directly with those who may be very different than ourselves. Now, finally, why might it be possible for us to address the perennial problems of opportunity segmentation in our society? Why, why do I have this possible expectation that we may have a chance of doing so? It's good for all of us to make a claim and a commitment to address these issues. But why would we think there's any chance of success, given what our history has been? One reason, I think, and it's the one in which I place my greatest faith, one reason is that it is precisely such optimism that is within the best traditions of American civil society. If there is a sense of civil society in this country that has been consistent throughout time, it is that we have a strong sense of the unlimited possibility for doing better. We've sometimes strived, we have, we, we sometimes strive to build communities of connectedness with one another. And in striving to build these communities, whether we take as our justification the words of uh, James Madison in Federalist Number 10, where he refers to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community, whether we take it from Alexander Hamilton, where he refers to the deliberate sense of community that should guide America's promise, or we go back to French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville and the extent to which he refers to self-interest properly understood, we have a strong tradition of being able to reconcile our self-interest with our larger public interest. It is in that hope. It is in that historically based hope that I think we hold our greatest promise. I cer certainly hope that it will not take another act of God to push us toward building communities of interwoven destinies that are inclusive, socially viable, economically, and responsive politically. I do know that time will tell. Thank you very much. Okay, I want to thank our panelists for a very provocative set of comments. Uh, I hope at this point we've got some volunteers that are beginning to fan out through the room to pick up uh, three by five cards with your questions. And let's see, I see Emily and Frank, are you over there? Uh, okay. If you didn't receive a card, we'll get you one. Okay, our um, first question, and this looks like it's for the panel as a whole, and is how would you respond to Brown's assertion, i.e., the Congress or the Congressional Inquiry, that the FEMA emergency plan uh, was implemented as it was in the way that it was designed? That is, the public was expected to 
fend for herself for four days before federal help was to arrive. As a political scientist in the group, um, well, it, it uh, if, if that was the original the original plan, it was noticeably flawed. Uh, and as an example of political learning that I was referring to earlier, uh, may we and I think we saw that when the uh, more recent um, hurricane, what was it, Rita, um, came through, that uh, a number of cities um, adopted very different plans than what may have been there before. There were larger evacuations much, much more quickly. There was an immediate commitment of um, local resources across governmental units in trying to evacuate, especially those who were most vulnerable. Um, so I think that it demonstrates some opportunity for us to do better based upon that significant failure that we saw. May I jump in on that one? Absolutely. We saw many days later the capability of the federal government when you saw dozens of helicopters from the National Guard you saw hundreds of, of military vehicles pull up to evacuate people. Why on earth could that not be a part of emergency preparedness from day one? And I think that's what, the, what FEMA and ill-prepared folks who run that organization um, have to account for because it's, it was a response, but it was so tardy that it caused untold misery. Uh, this is a qu this is a question for uh, Professor Fraga, and that is, can you elaborate on the market inefficiencies uh, caused by mar opportunity segmentation? Yes, it's, it leads to the type of segregation of those with opportunities and resources away from those with less, and when it is further formalized into distinct governmental jurisdictions, it makes it virtually, not, not impossible, but virtually impossible for the tax base for the human capital resources, for the educational opportunities that exist in one jurisdiction to be shared with the other. Um, to what extent does Palo Alto share its wealth and resources, just using a, an example picked out of the blue, with East Palo Alto? <laughs> or with East San Jose? Well, of course there is. I mean, we all pay federal taxes. If we live in the area, we know those federal taxes might recirculate. But how much active communication and cooperation is there? That's what I'm referring to there, when opportunity segmentation within a system of federalism formalizes lines of division and makes difficult immediate communication, but more importantly, makes difficult any sense of, again, interwoven destinies, linked fate, maybe even common destiny across distinct areas. Thank you. Uh, this is a question for Professor Bobo, and that is, who measures net worth and how is this done? Um, that's actually a good question. Um, uh, the government doesn't do that much to monitor our wealth holdings. <laughs> it's actually not something routinely contained in the census, for example. But there are other sorts of government-sponsored systematic surveys, one in particular called the Survey of Income and Program Participation, that does try to do a phenomenally detailed effort of getting accounting of people's savings accounts, stocks and bonds, ownership, business ownership, and trying to put some value, home ownership, try to put some value on those things, and then to be in a position to calculate what's a net asset versus a debt, um, and to arrive at figures that allow some more precise calculation of really what are the cash assets 
aside from earnings or income, aside from paid employment, that a person may have available to them. So there are systematic surveys of a very large scale that have been going on for some time now, but nothing on the order of magnitude of a full-blown census um, to um, document it. So it, it's understudied, uh, vastly understudied. And I might add, even though surveys miss a huge amount of the wealth inequality out there, because many times wealth transfers are not saved until the end of life. Enormous wealth transfers occur at many different stages in life. Time of a marriage, time of a first grandchild, uh, time of a child going to college. Enormous transfers of wealth go on that we have usually not been in a good position to systematically monitor, but that sort of work is going on now, and I think the, the belief that that's a more fundamental component of the kind of stable quality of life differences that underlies a lot of what we take to be racial and ethnic inequality is really attributable to wealth, and indeed the fact that wealth, much more so than earnings or income, is something one um, inherits rather than derives from labor in one's lifetime. Thank you. Uh, the next question is for Professor Camarillo or Bobo. And the question is, one point of interest for me was that the past surveys of the New Orleans levees revealed that they would not withstand a strong hurricane like Katrina. What are your opinions, and what do you think that these, levee, think that these levees were not fixed uh, when their structural, structural integrity was called into question? Uh, was it plain government ineptitude, the poverty of the region, or something else? Well, I'll start. I mean, it, it, apparently for many, many years, uh, the engineers who controlled uh, both the partial reconstruction, patching of those, that levee system had complained that too few dollars had gone into the infrastructure of fortifying those levees, not only fortifying them by raising them, but also strengthening them because they, they knew that there were major, major structural issues and that they even predicted a Category 4 or 5 hurricane would, would cause erosion and possible flooding. Well, their prediction came true. So it, it, it speaks to me something that Professor Fraga's political science could, could, uh, could, reconfirm, could confirm as well. What is it about the priorities of resources for a very vulnerable urban area, maybe one of the most vulnerable in the United States, that has the, the possibility for catastrophic disaster when you have a system that holds back amazing amounts of water. Right? So clearly there was a lack of judgment, the deprioritization of resources to go in to protect uh, a population of, of, a, of a half a million or more people, and clearly just I think the, the lack of both local, state, and federal um, what, significance of a major social problem. Uh, around uh, the construction of levees that are way too old. I mean, these, these structures go back into the 19th century. Uh, they're worn, and this, this catastrophe um, laid bare what the problems of those levees are and will continue to be. Uh, okay, here's, a, I think, a challenging question. Uh, people have been pointing out the disparities between rich and poor, whites and minorities, and nothing has been done. There is no political will to do with it. Why do you think that anything will change after Katrina? Sorry to be so negative, the government will not do anything. Well, um, maybe I'll speak to that first. And I don't quite share the level of optimism that Luis evinced at the end here, but maybe close. 
And that is that I do think those images from Katrina make it hard, I think, to sustain the myths that make doing nothing plausible way of engaging these issues. That the evidence is just so strong, so clear, and so emotionally evocative that the idea that a political system can simply continue to ignore it becomes strained. It becomes very difficult. Not that it's impossible, but it is extremely hard, I think, not to have to respond to those images and to not have to curb one's rhetoric, for example, uh, about the limited limitations of government capacity uh, to respond to these problems and so on, because there are some problems, the magnitude of which, the scope of which, can only be responded to by an organized collective response supported through our collective tax revenues. Uh, and we need to have return to a vocabulary that defends that. Now that the imagery, the metaphor, Katrina, if you will, for that sort of engagement has been brought back vividly into the public imagination. Now, will the moment last? Will it not be perverted in some other way that gets turned in negative directions? It's hard to say. But those great many people who are of goodwill and who have been touched by these events need to have others speak out to them now, not about all the failures in the past, but that those moments that have been turned into something good, when people put together the people, the organizations, the resources, and the ideas necessary to turn things in a different sort of direction and make something positive out of uh, a bleak and troubling moment. What, what, I think should, I'm sorry. what I think should trouble us all is that we have yet to see, to my reading, to my knowledge, any major call by any of our political leaders for a, for a series of significant investments in urban areas in the United States. We see a tremendous commitment to New Orleans. We can argue about whether it's enough and the privatization of contracting and so forth, right? But what I don't think we have seen as of yet is either leaders of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party stepping forward and saying, this isn't just about New Orleans. This is about urban America. This is about opportunity. And I think we may be living through, this is the tempering of my optimism, I think we may be living through another lost moment like we did in 9-11 to be able to take advantage of the tremendous goodwill and commitment of broad cross-sections of the American public who don't normally think in similar ways and I, and I think the reason is because of the facts that were referred to earlier here tonight. To the extent that a political leader chooses to do that, they run the risk of being tagged, of wanting to help particular types of people, whether defined class-wise or racially, they run the risk of alienating sizable segments of our middle-of-the-road voting electorate, many of whom live in suburbs. You run the risk of being tagged, in the case of a Democrat, a tax-and-spend liberal. You run that risk, and many of our political leaders are very unsure as to whether they want to take that risk. Can I just add one thing here? Um, history provides an important lesson. This is, this is my historian hat on me now. So if you think of this disaster, it's the devastation of an entire city. So that's really unprecedented 
in American history in, in only a few other, exist, uh, other cases, San Francisco, 1906, Chicago Fire, a few other places, Galveston, Galveston uh, as well, uh, early 20th century. But if history tells us anything, it's going to tell us we're going to have to be pessimistic about this. Because when you're dealing with populations that are overrepresented in terms of being racial minorities and poor people, disasters and the response are momentary. They occur, there's a tension, there's oftentimes resources that come in for a short period of time, and then it goes away, and you're back to the same place. Okay, the next question is from a uh, volunteer who actually spent time in Mississippi doing relief work, and this volunteer writes, I stayed at Stennis Spates Center where I and others uh, counted scores of idle semi-trucks full of food, water, and ice. Still displaced citizens in Hancock County were turned away from seeking relief and were not allowed access to this government facility. How should those citizens seek accountability for such an egregious policy? Um, they should register to vote. Um, they should try as best they can to find out who may have been responsible um, and hold those individuals accountable um, during the next election, uh, whether it's at the local level, at the state level, uh, at the national level. Um, you know, there were, there were tremendous miscues and missed opportunities uh, on the part of many local government leaders and state leaders as well. It's, it's, it's easy for us to point to FEMA, and FEMA may be particularly vulnerable here, but there was a level of, of um, incompetence, frankly, at many different levels of government by those whom we entrust to uh, make decisions on our behalf. Al or Larry, you want to? Well, there's another tradition in American history of nonviolent collective protest. Um, and I think that uh, it's difficult to muster this kind of collective effort in the face of a devastating uh, natural disaster, but people will move back. And certain people, the people most adversely affected, will not forget this. Out of incidences like this, collective action occurs. And I think it's incumbent upon not only the people who were affected, but by people who feel strongly about the issues that are front and center. Okay, we have another question for the panel, and it says, in regards to Bush's quick jump to declare a zero-tolerance policy in New Orleans towards looters and criminals, what do you think of his attempts to restore order and chaos rather than focusing efforts on evacuation and stabilizing the affected, policy, the affected population in, in these cities? Well, this is one of the worrisome circumstances about the moment, and it's part of what I meant when I suggested it can be exploited in a variety of directions. It can be exploited in ways to try to emphasize interwoven destinies and linked fate and the need to, to build different types of capacities for civic responsiveness. Or it can play into the same old usual victim stereotypes about how we need to regulate these marginal people uh, and how we need to be careful about where the money goes and how our first obligation is to protect the property of decent people from the bad people uh, and to continue to draw more... Uh, divisions and more invidious distinctions. And I would worry about that, and I would, uh, as how do average citizens get involved in a way that can affect the kind of rhetoric and imagery that 
is likely to play out here? Well, one thing has come to our next session where that's the core subject. Uh, that's precisely what we'll discuss. Another way is to try to hold the media accountable and do not let them get away with simply reporting on that sort of rhetoric. For example, it's quickly forgotten, but in the 1988 presidential campaign, when Bush won, is he called 41? I think he's called 41, uh, ran the Willie Horton ads. Uh, it was a highly racialized, divisive effort to play on, in theory, the crime issue, but it was really a racial division, as most of the evidence shows. Those ads ran right up until the moment Jesse Jackson held a speech and said, this is racist. The ads stopped. Uh, they were embarrassed. Someone said, do you want to know what racism looks like? That is an example of it. Uh, and so people need to be willing to do that, to say it to reporters, to say it to media outlets, to say it to their elected officials, that you aren't going to allow these invidious distinctions that draw away from dealing with the real and transparent underlying issues uh, and that have been the, the, you know, the stock and trade of uh, certain political candidates and parties. Okay. okay, I've been asked also to uh, take a break here and just to mention uh, Emily Rio and Victor Thompson, the two graduate student coordinators who also helped make this event possible. I forgot to mention them. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question is also directed at the panel, and the question is, what are your thoughts about efforts to rebuild New Orleans and fears that the disaster will be used as an excuse for massive gentrification? What steps could help prevent this? The poorest section, the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, the most devastated by, by the floods, the breaking of the levee system, what could we have heard in response? Could we have heard, let's build better housing in the de this deteriorated, concentrated area of poverty, uh, better structures for people to move back? And I was dismayed when I heard, and these were government officials saying, maybe we should rezone the Ninth Ward so industrial development can take place. So what is it? You continue to displace a people already displaced from a huge section of the city. If that's the mentality that is going to um, be what we hear in political discourse and economic development, then we're going to see a gentrified city. We're going to see a city that uh, will say goodbye to the poor people. There's no room for you again to move back. Um, but, I, but I hope there are those citizens within the city as they move back and other people, and as Luis mentioned, the politicians with the political will to say, we have to do it differently, and it's imperative for us to do it differently. All right, this is uh, a question that's actually from somebody who has family in the area. Um, there are currently uh, still people in my bayou community uh, in Louisiana with water in their homes and yards and living without electricity and plumbing. Why is it that even with all the help and, and aid going to Louisiana, that smaller, poorer communities are being overlooked? That's for the panel. Okay. Uh, ditto. Um, they are marginal people, right? They are considered not to be of value in the same way uh, as others who were evacuated or have the means to evacuate. They, 
They're not considered to be important political voices in the political process. There are people without resources who aren't going to uh, you know, pound the drum and, and make noise. So these are people, as I, as I was trying to claim and identifying people who are marginalized on the periphery and don't have a voice, and it's incredibly hard for these people to get the kind of resources. They're American citizens, or they're people working hard, and yet they're neglected um, and they're forgotten. Uh, this is a question for Professor Fraga, and that is, how do you create a sense of unity through difference without emphasizing sameness, without denying the significance of difference? Could you read that again, please? Okay. <laughs> uh, how do you create a sense of unity through difference uh, without emphasizing sameness, without denying the significance of difference? I, I think it happens in, in my own experience and in the experience of research on conflict resolution. It happens through an honest, one of the ways in which it happens is through an honest discussion of what one's interests actually are and an honest discussion of what it is one is trying to gain from the particular circumstance that happens to confront you. And what very often happens in such circumstances, and much of this research is done in um, the private sector on conflict resolution in major uh, Fortune 500 firms, where you get one division fighting against another division, right? So we're not talking about issues of race and class, right? That the divisions become possible when one of the participants begins to outline areas of mutual self-interest. When one of the participants, be, if you will, puts him or herself in the shoes of the person on the other side. One of the ways in which I'm suggesting here, when we think in terms of race and class, and there's some studies that have been done of, of these um, communication circles and discussion circles and so forth that shows the same sort of thing, is that when you get people together who are not accustomed to talking with each other, very soon, not always, but very soon for many people, what one initially thought was a difference between you you find is overshadowed by something that you may hold in common, a concern for your children, a desire to, to uh, worship a particular faith, a sense of spiritual, a sense of spiritual fulfillment that provides a foundation then for that discussion. What's very important here is that it's not a denial of the difference, but rather it is an honest explication of the difference that allows then individuals to feel validated that can then allow them to build upon what it is that they may share as, if you will, mutual self-interest or what they may share in common. That's, I think, how you get it done. Now, what, what happens with regards to issues of race and class in the United States is that we have very few opportunities to have honest, open, safe discussions about this difference. Very few. It tends not to happen in our workplaces, tends not to happen in our neighborhoods, rarely happens in many of our churches, to a degree happens at universities, to a degree in particular courses, probably this one being one of them. <laughs> it happens in certain unique circumstances, but not that often. Might we structure more such opportunities to facilitate that sort of understanding across lines of what we might initially perceive to be major difference. Thank you. 
The next question is, do you think that this disaster, and this is for the panel, do you think that this disaster will change the rate of participation among the very poor in the next presidential election? Will these people respond, or are we separating them through relocation uh, so much that they won't cooperate, rise up, and respond, thereby continuing this cycle of disenfranchisement? Um, it's in the hands of, I would argue, political and community leaders. Um, I don't think it will happen um, um, just from the, from the bottom up. Uh, I think you're going to need a commitment of resources in the hands, again, either of community leaders, community-based organization leaders, civil disobedience leaders. You're going to need to have a commitment and a strategizing and a fundraising effort on their part to mobilize, whether for voting or for other purposes, to mobilize those segments of the population to demand that government be more responsive and that all of us be more responsive uh, to, their, um, to their needs and interests. There's a critical role here for many of us in this room, members, if you will, of the political elite, who either through our capability to contribute financially, our capability to motivate others, if not our capability to actually be one of those leaders ourselves, is very much within our power to determine whether or not we want to commit the time and resources to mobilizing those individuals to then, in fact, go and allow their own voices to be heard, articulate their own interests, and make demands of those to whom they should make these appropriate demands. Let me, let me come at this a different way. Uh, John Gardner, who I had enormous respect for, one of the great public servants of the 20th century, had many important things, messages to pass on to him. But one of the, that, that really resonates with me, and apropos of, the, of this question and the response is, I don't think we're going to reshape the national political agenda. I'm pessimistic in that regard. But John Gardner said in the 21st century, although he was really talking about the late 20th century, but I'll, I'll, I'll project it to the 21st century, where we, will have, where we will be able to make a difference in civic life, in the preservation of democracy, the evolution of democracy so that it's more inclusive is at our local communities. This is where, and with students from my sophomore college class, this is, this is reiteration, because I try to give them a parting message. This is where we can have an impact, right? Our local communities where we can actually do things to foment social change. It's so much harder at the state level, nearly impossible at the federal level. Can be done, to be sure. But where can we have the greatest impact then becomes the question. Where do we direct our most important sustained political energy, and I would argue, and John Gardner would, would, uh, would confirm this at the local level. This one comes from a photojournalist on the front lines of coverage, uh, specifically in the bayou, and that as, the, as a social crisis, how can we treat mass victimology on the part of the most marginalized as it directly challenges the concept of interwoven destinies. Can you repeat that? Sure. Uh, as, a social, as, a, as a social crisis, how can we treat uh, mass victimology on the part of the most uh, marginalized as it directly challenges the concept of interwoven destinies? That's too hard. Next. <laughs> Next. Okay. No, no, it, it... It is hard, but um, I think 
Um, I would go at this two ways. One part of it is to say, and, uh, and I say this to I, most journalists who I think are indeed of quite good will, we have to be careful about falling back on the old scripts, right? On the old ways of framing an issue, of seeing in one frame a looter and in another frame someone finding food and clothes. Uh, and to always be checking ourselves, in effect, to not be imposing old scripts when there is an opportunity, in effect, to just depict, portray, and in a way amplify a human drama. A human drama that I think just in its bare appearance communicates a more powerful message than most of the narratives one attempts to drape uh, around it. And that that would be part of the message there because that is what allows the, the, that instant flash of human connection. That is what allows someone sitting comfortable in the suburbs to go, oh my God, is it really like this, right? To have that moment of insight and empathy that opens the door to great change. It's easy to forget the kind of events and protests and marches that were the cornerstone of the civil rights movement, but it's often that exact quality that they embraced and had. So that when the marchers tried to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, a nation that hadn't expected to see it saw civil, peaceful, praying protesters be attacked by sheriffs and a marauding mod, mob with horses, whips, chains, clubs, dogs, and fists. And people who might well have cared less about the civil rights movement went, oh my God. And out of a moment like that, you get the national will to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Okay? Uh, and it's dramatic instances like this that provide a lot of the moral leverage and, again, the powerful metaphors and the conviction about what's real, what's actually out there in situations I don't have direct <laughs> access to, that we shouldn't underplay or shortchange. Uh, and in terms of near-term political campaigns, I mean, Boston Harbor sank one political candidate, Katrina's likely to sink another, all right? It's that straightforward an image of how a certain philosophy and approach to governing went wrong. Uh, and so it's a, a question of striving to keep that message and that imagery alive. It's a question for the panel as a whole. What are the implications of the great social and economic divide that the panel has discussed for the future of American democracy? Small question. I think a professor wrote that question. Yeah. Huh. Anybody want to take a crack at it? Yeah. Well, well, I would say it, um, it doesn't bode well for a sense of evolving democracy that is more inclusive and responsive. What it tells us is that uh, we're likely to have a certain level of democracy and a certain level of what I would call strategic responsiveness on the part of political leaders who try to target their message to distinct segments of the population rather than try to fashion a message that allows all of us to think of possibilities that we may not have 
formerly considered. So it doesn't mean that our society is going to crumble. It doesn't mean that our institutions are going to uh, immediately be identified as failures. It means that our institutions are going to work to a degree. And we, it seems to me, as voters and citizens and leaders and organizers, we are largely in control of the extent to which we will or will not allow that to happen. But it's going to take, it seems to me, many of us beginning to forge relationships with segments of our population with whom many of us traditionally do not forge important political relationships. Absent the appearance, as happened in 1964 and in the late 1950s, of a very unique leader of conscience and a particularly well-positioned president who could broker the legislation being passed. Absent that type of political leadership, and I don't see it coming from either side of the aisle right now, absent that type of political leadership, the only place I can have any hope is in the possibility that people of goodwill will begin the process of trying to get together to change expectations that we all have of what it is our political leaders, our political leaders offer us. Okay, the next the next question is for the panel as a whole, and it is that uh, from anecdotal evidence, there is some indication of a political cultural backlash against the victims of Katrina. Please comment on where this might be coming from and how to address it. You guys getting tired? <laughs> well, I, I said I think some of it is... Um, uh, the articulation of this alternative strategy of, of viewing the events uh, to try to cast it instead of as a failure of the no-tax, small government, local approach to governing, to turn it into a failure of the big government, welfare state, tax and spend strategy. And so the argument that goes, these are the people who've always failed, these are the people who have undeservedly drawn on uh, the public trough, and uh, to sustain that sort of narrative. Again, by and large, I think the images talk about very, or establish very simple human suffering and are not long going to be susceptible to that. So I don't think that narrative has that much appeal unless folks of goodwill remain silent in the face of the repeated loud bellowing of that sort of message from Fox TV and people like Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and if that continues to be the case, and there is no alternative alternative narrative, um, then that's going to be what the echo chamber puts out. Uh, and that will sadly become the legacy, the public legend of Katrina. Collective memory is a very important thing. And I, I, I'm loath to attempt to lecture a historian, so I, I won't do that. But the understanding of events that we create and collectively embrace are very powerful things. If we understand, for example, the end of the Civil War as a moment to heal a nation and fully include those who were once property, well, that's a powerful vision. But if instead the vision becomes of an unfortunate war between the states and a time for redemption, well, 
you've organized a huge piece of the issue right out of the picture of how you understand the fundamental nature of the event. And so we can't allow, I think, the collective narrative, the popular memory and image of this event, to become defined as an effort to stop looting and graft and corruption. Because as we know, that is not why 50,000 people were standing in the Superdome going, please help us. Um, and it's, it's almost criminally ridiculous to think that that's the state our civic discourse is at, that we are actually going to have a fraction of that sort of discussion. Uh, and it's perhaps because we've lost the capacity for outrage uh, in the face of so many unfortunate turns in political culture and discourse. But I want to submit for now that we have an opportunity to put forward something different and an obligation to try to articulate what seems to me a more realistic and viable message and that uh, we shouldn't forfeit uh, that opportunity. Okay, we have uh, time for one or two more questions. Uh, so the next one uh, is that it seems the U.S., and this is for the panel as a whole, it seems the U.S. government doesn't mind keeping its citizens afraid, e.g. the terror color-coded alert system. So how is FEMA allowed to get away with not doing much with the predictions of a cat catastrophic hurricane that were very much public before the hurricane actually hit? Um, um, bureaucracy provides great protection um, for for many uh, in the society. I mean, I think you have to go back. Um, what has been the uh, effort by the um, United States senators from the state of Louisiana and from the congressional delegation from the area right around uh, New Orleans um, to what has been their history of uh, fighting tooth and nail for increased funding for the levies. It's, you know, it, it's very important that we understand this isn't just about FEMA. It's very important to understand that. We can, hold, we can blame FEMA all we want, and there happens to be a, a very vulnerable person who headed FEMA at the time, who didn't do himself particularly well during the congressional, uh, congressional inquiries. But the responsibility has to go back a number of years. Decisions made by majorities in the U.S. Congress Decisions made by both Democrats and Republicans, decisions made by both Democrat and Republican White Houses about limited funding, about not protecting that particular area, and hoping at a minimum that this did not happen on anyone's particular watch. And, and there's, there's one reason that happens, folks, and it's because we come to have such low expectations of our public officials. Again, we get the government we deserve to a degree. And it isn't until we start changing those expectations that I think we begin the possibility of pushing our leaders to be more responsive, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. Well, to amplify on this, this Katrina disaster should give us all pause in the Bay Area. We sit on two incredibly active faults, and you know our seismologists here and everywhere else in the, in the world are saying there's going to be a massive earthquake that's going to devastate portions of the Bay Area. I'm afraid. I mean, think about what preparedness would have to occur, estimating 10,000 people dead, 
more than a quarter million people homeless, and you're supposed to fend for yourself for three or four days. This suggests to us we better fend for ourselves for three or four months. So what does it suggest to us? All uh, Luis's comment about one, it's not a partisan issue, right? This is the safety of, of, of our society, of our local societies. It requires coordination, a no-brainer coordination between the local, the state, and the federal government, especially in localities of great vulnerability of which we sit right in the middle of, right? So all of us can be, should be concerned. All of us should express our opinions and express our concerns that places like the Bay Area that we, whether we like to admit it or not, will face a disaster of catastrophic proportions in certainly the next 20 years. Will we be ready? Well, we better start asking the hard questions of the people responsible for preparedness. Okay, and I want to end with this. I want to end with this question: Is that what can I do as a public high school teacher of angry East Palo Alto students? And I presume this is with regard to the hurricane. What can you do? <laughs> One more time. Um, one thing we can all do is to um, educate, in this case perhaps students, certainly educate our friends and our family in the um, institutional contexts and, if you will, power contexts that allowed this sort of a tragedy to happen. We have to basically get smart about why it is that government might have been so slow to respond about why it was that levies would be underfunded for such a long period of time. We have to better teach the realities of political power and political context and the importance of individual citizen voice to say, if you don't like things like this, then you need to get involved. You need to help others get involved. And you need to hold yourself, as well as your political leaders, again, to a much higher set, set of expectations. The other message is we should be able to do better mm -hmm. as a society. And I think that's a simple message that many of our youth will understand, because I think, separate from, from many of our political pundits and others, I think many of our youth were clearly moved by with the images that they saw and have a deeper respect for the human suffering that occurred and are perhaps less likely to try to rationalize away the segmented opportunity that characterizes so much of what we have here in the United States today. For me, it, it, it's about making a human connection and doing something that you yourself feel is a contribution. I think there's nothing more genuine in a, in a catastrophe of this sort than to reach out. Is it sending money to the Red Cross? For some of us, that's all we can do and that, that's okay. I just heard from a group of students the day before yesterday in an email, which I actually remind I have to, to respond to that email. They are organizing, Stanford students are, are organizing what we call an alter, alternative spring break. So for those seven days between winter and spring quarter, a group of Stanford students are going to head to the Gulf Coast states. And they're going to do something to make a human connection to the people that are experiencing misery there. For them, that is a response. But we all have to think about our own individual responses that 
contribute in some basic way. There's no cookie cutter type of response for all of us. It's, we have to make those individual decisions. And if we do, the bottom line, we've contributed to the common good and we've reached out to fellow human beings who happen to live in our own country. I would add just one further thing, especially for the high school students. Um, never underestimate uh, the energy and drive and innovativeness of youth. And I would encourage you to definitely engage in these uh, individual community-oriented efforts that Al and Louise and others have mentioned. But I would also say to you, feel free as a class to collectively write to your congressional representative and say, we want to see you at our school explaining what you were saying in the United States Congress and doing in the United States Congress about what happened after Katrina. Organize at that school. Write to Barbara Boxer and to Diane Feinstein and say, we want to see you, our elected representative, and hear what's being done on this issue. Prove to them that there are young people starting to come together. That's how lunch counter sit-ins started. That's how freedom marches started. Just get going. Don't wait for the professors to tell you. Start kicking the doors in. That is my advice to you. Well, thank you, Larry. That's a, gr that's a great way to end. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.